Welcome to episode 28 of the Woke Antidote coming to you guys July 4th weekend. So hoping everyone has a fantastic weekend this weekend. And TB, I think there's going to be some celebrations this weekend, which is uh, quite different than what we've seen across the U.S. with protests over the last couple weekends. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty welcome change because, you know, for the past few weeks, it's just been a constant barrage of anti-American sentiment, hearing how horrible our country is. Um, and again, I will always argue that our country may not be perfect, but it's pretty damn close and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else but here. So this 4th of July weekend, I'm going to feel extra grateful and appreciative about the great country that we live in. We may not always agree. We may not always be at our best, but you know, there's a reason why people want to come to this country because it does afford you so many opportunities. This country has really brought a lot of stability and peace to the world um and you know it's you know if you're an american you should feel very appreciative that you live in this great land and hopefully we get back to our greatness uh soon enough yeah unfortunately it doesn't look like that's going to happen immediately and you know if you guys couldn't tell we were referring to the protests after the roe v wade decision now we pretty much knew this decision was going to happen we did a pod on it um maybe a month or two back so we won't go very detailed into it but essentially we want to talk about how intolerant the left is being of diverse viewpoints and this was none other on display than just the disgustingness of them going after clarence thomas where there's good morning america tweeting that Kentaji brown jackson was the first african-american supreme court justice not correcting that for several hours you have Whoopi goldberg alluding to the fact that He's putting the U.S. on a path of, of blacks being a quarter of a person in, in the Constitution. And Clarence, he's one of those guys that, you know, first of all, he's one of the five or six justices that were in this decision, but they really focused on him. But he's had an amazing life and he's come from from almost nothing to rise to this incredible position. This should be a description of the American dream that everybody out there should be celebrating. I mean, that the, the left and especially, they should be happy that um, an African-American man has succeeded so well in society, and yet they're trying to tear him down. But this is so classic. And there's just, you know, ridiculous reactions out there, like CNN going out and saying that the Republican Party now has a rape problem. Um, that's, that's not really how we should be having a dialogue about abortion in the country, right? Where... Um, if you start off by saying that the other side has a rape problem, are you really looking to get to a common point of view? I don't really think so. And then we have ridiculous comments from people like Jane Fonda. Um, I mean, celebrities are always coming in here with absurd comments, but she's claiming that we need to redefine vaginas as AK-47s. So you just get a absurd reaction from the left. You have Biden coming out calling the Supreme Court illegitimate, essentially. You've got people like AOC pretty much saying we got to tear down the Supreme Court. And, you know, TB, we talk about it a lot, but these are the same people that were so excited to bring democratic norms, quote unquote, back to the White House after Trump left. And the same people that called for that, they're now annoyed at the Supreme Court and saying, 
it's not a legitimate institution. They are now saying that, yeah, there's there's a uh, the Republicans haven't won the popular vote in decades. This is what AOC was saying so that the Supreme Court's illegitimate. Well, then move, move to a country where there's not an electoral college, move to a country where the popular vote is what what is used to elect people. You know, this is this is things we've been doing for centuries in this country. So it's the left throwing a hissy fit and protesting when they don't get what they want. And I'm just so sick of it. But there's it's one thing to protest. It's another thing to really, you know, throw around racist stuff. And that's what they did to, to Thomas. That's why I wanted to, to lead off the show with that. But yeah, TB, I, I know you have a lot of thoughts about this, but, you know, I, I'm just it was pretty bad, but nothing really surprises me anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of things I want to say about this topic because it's so emotionally charged and there's been so many just ridiculous takes made by this. So first, just on the Roe v. Wade overturning decision, I'll hit on that first just because that was, a, you know, it was, it was a relatively low, uh, slow news cycle, but that was within the past week or so, that was like the news. Um, there's been a lot of developments since then. So I'll, I'll start with that. But what frustrates me the most is the amount of misinformation that's being spread about this decision. So firstly, my, one of my biggest frustrations is that the left really looks as the Supreme Court as a as another political arm that's meant to enact the the political mission and agenda of the current administration. And that can, couldn't be further from the truth. The way that the Supreme Court was designed was that it is supposed to be an objective neutral branch that takes the framework of the Constitution. So the Constitution's the very foundation of our country. These are the rules and principles that we abide by. And they take that framework and then they say, based on how the founders framed this document, they then look to issues that arise today and apply that framework to it and say, how, how, how do we interpret this? Obviously, abortion wasn't around in the 1700s. Obviously, high capacity uh, military grade weapons weren't around back then. So based off of the basic principles that the, the founders laid out in the Constitution, how should we interpret that and apply it to today's issues? That's simply their 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 viewpoint. So with the with Roe v. Wade getting overturned, the left is all up in arms because it was their expectation that the the court should be satisfying and fulfilling their political motivation, and the, and that's just a very gross and, and wrong interpretation and understanding of how the Supreme Court is. So that's a that's a complete fabrication. Secondly, the other issue that I'm, that, that we're seeing is that in terms of misinformation is that they are saying that the that this is such a, a a catastrophic decision because the government is essentially dictating what people do with their health and their bodies and actually it couldn't be further from the truth roe v wade actually was a the federal government saying that they had complete autonomy to, to dictate a, a health decision and a lot, you know, making that decision as a, as a sweeping decision for the entire country. If anything, it's more democratic this way, where it's saying we will let the people decide for themselves what they want. So it's putting it back into the state. So there's a lot of misinformation that, oh, the abortion is being banned. All these people are at risk. It's not. It's abortion still here. And it's just like the it's it's a, such a funny observation to me where if you look on social media. If you look around your peers um, you will see that the loudest voices are from those who are in blue states. 
And for those in blue states, their lives are not being impacted. They will still have unfettered access to abortion. They can get abortions as often as they want to. Probably in New York and places like New York and California and Massachusetts, they can probably get it even more now because they're probably going to go even more extreme to, to counteract this. And I say that in jest, but point being that they definitely, you know, these people, it's all virtue signaling. They, they, uh, you know, they, nothing's going to change for them. They just want to feel good about themselves and uh, get virtual likes on social media. So that way they can feel validated. Um, and then I think, you know, another issue I have with it is with misinformation is you're hearing all these stories like, oh, you know, women, they can have these issues with, you know, ulcers or in the cases of rape and incest. And, um, you know, by doing this, Republicans want women to die. They want them to have to carry these babies to term and uh, risk their lives. And, you know, they'll they won't be able to save themselves. That's an you know, that's an absolute fabrication. And this comes down to my major criticism of the left's pro-choice narrative. Uh, and again, I've shared this on the show before. I actually have a very nuanced take on this. There's, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm agreeable with certain exceptions, certain circumstances where abortion may be a viable option. Um, and also, my take is you come from a place of compromise. You know, regardless of what your religious or uh, political or you know personal views may be, there's people who disagree with you. And if you both come from two extremes, there's no way of getting into a place that you can be happy with because you you won't be able to compromise. You won't be able to meet in the middle. So um, I think, you know, seeing as, as that, I think we can say, OK, you know, there's certain circumstances where even if I personally wouldn't get an abortion, I can I can feel you know, it, 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 it's not as gross uh, in that circumstance. I can feel like that's justified or understandable in those circumstances. So what the left, what the left's positioning is, they always take these fringe cases like rape and incest, which are very mm. low percentage of, of what abortions uh, that happen on an annual basis are. They take these fringe cases to use to justify uh, their pro-choice sentiment. And I think like a normal person, like a, or I'll take that back, not necessarily normal, but an average person would probably agree that in the case of, in those extreme cases where the mother's life is at risk, or if she was unfortunately sexually assaulted or anything like that, and, and she became pregnant from it, you know, I think most people could agree, okay, an abortion would be justified or understandable in those positions. I think that's a pretty common sense, rational take on that. Um, so you, you, the right can say, okay, we agree with that, but then the left still wouldn't be happy with it because ultimately that's not what they want. They want completely unfettered access to abortion for all nine months of the pregnancy. So that's where it gets pretty gross when you think about that, where the, you know, in, in New York, uh, Chuck Schumer, he wanted to grant access to abortion up to nine months. So at the very imagine that a woman's about to give birth, the baby has fully developed. The only thing that's that's different is that it's just in the mother's womb, just waiting to be born any week now. And the, the extreme left wants women to be able to have the choice of killing that baby. And I think at that, when, when you look at it that way, if that baby has developed so much, you know, that, 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 I think that's like the, the mystery and or kind of like why abortion is such a charged subject. It's like, how do you define when life begins? And that's a very difficult and nebulous, you know, type of, thing to really you know it's not tangible it's hard to really understand that but i think we could agree 
in the eight or nine months when the baby has a full beating heart, limbs, you know, it is pretty much a fully grown baby. I think, I think we can all be in agreement that that's very different than in the first trimester, you know, in the first three, four months of the, of the baby's life, that baby is exceptionally more developed. And I, you know, I think like ultimately that the crux of the issue for their stance on this is that they want to, they look at abortion as a way of, as a, as a method of liberation, as a method of, um, you know, just a, a method of birth control to them. And it's when you think about it that way, it's actually very gross and heinous and no one really wants to vocalize that. And they, it's like an inconvenient truth of, that they never want to admit. So they always attach themselves to these fringe cases, these extreme cases, because it's a, it's a barrier. It's saying, oh, if you're pro-choice, you want us to die. You want us to be raped and carry babies. And like, that's not the case at all. Um, you know, it's, it's the belief that, you know, humans are worthy of life. And you look at that baby in development as worthy of life. That's what that's the pro-choice. I'm, I'm sorry, the pro-life stance on this. And um, I, I think like that's that's my entire issue with the with the left's pro-choice movement on this because it's not based in reason it's not based in common sense it's you know it it, it really is just kind of like you know pretty heinous when you think about it that way you know they're not willing to compromise and say you know what in the third trimester i think we can agree the baby has developed enough that we can then say you know that's that's a that's a human baby may you know if you want to say in the third trimester when it's like kind of like a little tadpole if you want to say, you know, that's not a life, fine. Like, I, you know, I, I personally disagree with that. But, like, you know, I, I can kind of understand what they're saying there. But, you know, the third trimester, that's something I can't, really can't wrap my head around. But anyways, that, that's been my whole, whole issue with kind of the fallout from this. And then, SB, to touch on what you said about Clarence Thomas, and this is going to be a big theme of our, of our show today, kind of like the intolerant left. So Clarence Thomas, he's the big boogeyman now, um, even though, as you said, SB, six, you know, five other justices, in addition to Clarence Thomas, voted in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade. But Clarence Thomas is being single handedly pointed out as the as the, the kind of the, the scapegoat for this. And, you know, it's it's pretty disgusting to see this happen because the, the way that they're doing this, they're they're attacking him firstly for his religious views. Um, and they're blaming, you know, these pro-Christian justices for, you know, intermingling their religious views into this. Um, and then secondly, they're, they're really using race as a weapon. So you mentioned a few examples. There was a, one guy uh, who I can't stand, Rex Chapman. He used to be a Kentucky basketball legend, went to the NBA for a little bit, got highly addicted to drugs, uh, became a burnout, got arrested for shoplifting. Um, and then to change his life around, he just became a woke liberal social media influencer. And now he's landed uh, jobs on the, uh, the short-lived CNN Plus. Uh, you'll see him uh, on ESPN. So now he's kind of like carved out a nice little role for him by being super woke. But he made comments that Clarence Thomas doesn't go to basketball games and he's married to a white woman. So he isn't sufficiently black enough. And that's a very racist statement to make. But of course, because Rex Chapman is on the left and plays the game well, he'll never get criticized for that. He'll, you know, he can make those racist comments and no, he'll, he will never get fired. He'll never get suspended. It's a complete double standard. And, you know, they, they, they really look at Clarence Thomas as, as a threat because, 
you know, he's a black man who has conservative views and the left hates that. They do not, they do not respect and acknowledge someone uh, who is of a minority uh, descent, uh, but has conservative views. And as we saw with Good Morning America, they had a tweet up there that said, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson was the first African-American to be nominated to the Supreme Court and it took them five hours to, to correct that. And that ultimately is how the left views minorities. We talk about this theme all the time with Hispanic Americans, Hispanic conservatives. You are not sufficiently a minority enough if you do not hold views against them. And as beyond about you, I just can't I can't really think of anything more racist than that. Um, when you, you're willing to dehumanize someone because of your political views. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I, I know I've said quite a lot, so I'll, I'll stop here. But ultimately, I think that is, you know, that, that, that is just absolutely, there's no place for that. It's heinous, it's disgusting. Um, and what's happening, the, the character smearing that's re- happening to Clarence Thomas right now is disgusting. Because SB, you're absolutely right. He is a representation of the American dream to to come from his background, his upbringing, um, coming from nothing to being in the highest court of the land. Um, and he's one of the smart, if you read his, his, uh, his writings, he's incredibly intelligent. And he's also just known to be a very good person. Like Sonia Sotomayor, who I absolutely can't stand, even she said that Clarence Thomas is the first person to ask you how your day is going and remember family members and she had nothing but positive things to say about him so it's an absolute disgrace what's happening to him and of course it's what you what's expected though from the radical left when when they come to issues like this yeah I, i wanted to hit on two things you said so first clarence thomas it goes to the biden comment if you're not voting for me you ain't black the democrats think they control minorities really but but black specifically but it goes back to the hispanic theme we keep talking about in the pod they they think they control the minority vote which is so insane and they're the ones that are most racist because they're saying if you think outside of this box then you're basically betraying your race i mean what's what's more racist than saying someone's betraying their race or in the case of utb the the media wants to call you a, a white nationalist hispanic so just incredibly racist and that's where that's where the real racism racism is coming from in the country where the left thinks that one particular race has to think a certain way so that's just insane and then i I like you bringing in their religion angle to this as well because i saw some takes from the left and and i think the left very much is an atheist they're they're very atheist and instead of worshiping a you know the christian god they are worshiping um it's the god of esg it's the god of government it's it's the god of um feminism i mean some of the stuff that these people are are putting in their life to fill the hole that you know organized religion might typically fill is pretty bad but the i saw some takes that oh like america is we're we're in route to this christian nationalist country um, maybe Christian white nationalist country, even though Clarence Thomas is the one they're hating on. And I just think about that and, and they're using that as, as a slur and an insult. And I think that's that's very insulting against Christians that all of a sudden that we, you know, and it's, and it's not even that this ruling is going to be in every state, as you just mentioned, there's going to be plenty of states 
that you can still get an abortion and that's fine, but that one ruling goes uh, against the, the, the left, the liberal order and all the, all of a sudden the walls are closing in. It's the handmaid's tale. Women have no freedom. Oh, Clarence Thomas is warning about contraceptive uh, contraceptives and that's going to be taken away soon. So that just what the extremes they go to when they don't get their way is just so incredibly frustrating. There's, there's no room for nuance and there's no room for any reasoned debate of any kind. And that's just, it's really frustrating and I'm sick of it. Um, but, but on that topic, um, you know, one of the things they do is if, if you throw an opinion out there that the left doesn't like, you are at risk of being fired. And there's a couple stories in tech which TV you have a lot of experience in um, that came out this week that I thought were, were perfectly emblematic of that thinking. From that. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I was sticking with the Roe v. Wade abortion discussion. I'll start with this story first. So this is a personal one, but, you know, working in tech, I, I've shared this before and should come as no surprise to anyone listening, but it's incredibly woke. Um, it's you know, extremely much a, a left echo chamber. You know, it, it is what it is. I'm an open-minded person. It doesn't stop me from wanting to work there or respecting my coworkers. I can acknowledge and respect that people have different opinions than me, and it doesn't change anything how I look at them. Uh, unfortunately, that that sentiment isn't returned, but um, that's just the world that we live in. But, you know, regardless, we had a team call the other week, and they wanted to take a moment to create a safe space to talk about, have people on the call share their reactions and feelings about the Roe v. Wade decision and it just became just this constant just like everyone complaining being like sad and angry about what happened and they just my biggest frustration and this is not just you know reflective of the company that that I'm at now this has happened at every company I've worked at in tech but they just automatically assume everyone is liberal they can't even fathom that someone could potentially be conservative or religious and have views that might be, you know, supportive of the decision. It's, you know, they automatically assume that and they talk about all their plans to start, you know, starting volunteering campaigns at Planned Parenthood or campaigning for Democrat politicians. Um, So it's this, again, the theme of the intolerant left where on that call, you know, they're, they're, they didn't want to hear about someone who was, you know, supportive of the decision. Um, that person would have been probably, uh, they would have been reported to HR. They would have, uh, at the very least, those employees would have held a grudge against someone for speaking in favor of the decision. Um, and they would have, you know, they, I, I know these people, they definitely would have resented, um, you know, if I had spoken up, they would have resented me for doing so. Um Whereas I don't resent them for them speaking up. So it's an absolute double standard. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, this is a very common occasion, you know, circumstance uh, in, in the tech world. Every, they automatically assume everyone is liberal. They always talk about having these, you know, you know and I'll, I'll, when we move into this, this, this next story that kind of speaks on this theme. But they always, they always talk about celebrating diversity of people, diversity of thoughts and ideas. But that's not really the case. That's actually a complete falsehood. Um, they don't want diversity of thought. If you're not liberal, you're not welcome. Um, it's completely authoritarian in that regard. Which brings me to the next story, where this story was getting, gaining some steam over Twitter. That's where I first saw it. 
but this uh this this young guy i think he was only like 22 23 so in his young 20s he works for a tech company or he used to rather and he was uh, an sdr so that's a sales development representative that's a very low uh you're, you're at the lowest of the, of the on the totem pole in terms of uh, a sales professional and he was fired from his company outreach.io because he was making tiktoks that was uh making funny observations and jokes about bodegas new york city so he was offered a job um, to work at outreach and he had to relocate to new york city so new york city is a very expensive place and his salary was only forty-seven thousand. So I don't even know how he was affording living there, but he was just making jokes about, you know, how he could only afford to eat at bodegas. And but for those not familiar, bodegas are kind of like this cherished, you know, New York culture type of thing. It's they're like convenience stores that are open 24 seven. They sell everything, anything you could imagine. Um, and they really are a staple of New York City. Um, you know, they, they've grown being in the area. It's grown near and dear to my heart. But he's he's absolutely right that, you know, the food quality isn't great. You know, it's not like you're going to a restaurant. You're getting, you know, prepackaged food or like a, a crappy sandwich from whatever deli that they may have. And he was just making jokes and observations about that. And then what happened was he was reported for being racist about that. Um, and he was fired from his job. Outreach fired him. And this is just a reflection of that where. I know personally many coworkers on the left who have TikToks, Instagrams, and they make very edgy jokes and say some inflammatory things from a left-wing perspective. And they their jobs are never at risk. If anything, they're they're celebrated for doing so. But someone who is just doing comedy on TikTok and might you know make an edgy joke from here and there, nothing with hateful intent, but that person is immediately fired, no questions asked. But I will say, SB, a nice, you know, development with the story. And we talked about this theme of defunding the woke. I, I kind of saw this happening where in Outreach's uh, tweets talking about that they made a decision to terminate this employee, they were ratioed. Um, they had people commenting, saying, you know, I'm a upper senior manager that was evaluating Outreach. And uh, I've, I've uh, informed my team to remove them from the evaluation or I've rec- made that recommendation there were constant tweets just like that. And I, I think, you know, uh, that, that was very encouraging, SB, because, you know, th- there's just no place for, for wokeness in, in politics. And that was my biggest issue with, you know, what happened to me personally with the, with the people trying to have like a, like a meditation hour and safe space to, to vent about Roe v. Wade. If you really allow yourself to be so consumed by politics that it becomes part of your identity, and you feel the need to bring it into your workplace, uh, then you're just a loser. You you are someone who needs to get a life and, and find a hobby, find something better to do with your life, because you can't let politics become part of your identity, become who you are. It's an aspect of you of yourself, but there's so much more to that. And personally, I just never found it, you know, just never found it appropriate to bring politics into the workplace. Like that doesn't that shouldn't you know, you shouldn't have any impact on the type of work you do or what you do. I've always found it uncomfortable when people do that. And for whatever reason, the left just feels super, super motivated just to bring it into the workplace constantly. And you always have to be talking about politics. It just seems like an unhealthy obsession. So, uh, yeah, a little, a little crazy, you know, wokeness in, in the tech world. But, you know, in tech, that's just another day. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have some wokeness at work, but nothing like you guys have. So I, I do at least appreciate that I'm a little bit better off there. But 
Yeah, I totally agree. And what's funny is that the the joke that the joke the guy was making was that he was going he was looking for dinner and he was going around to all these quote unquote grocery stores that he thought were stores and he was saying, "What the heck? They're all bodegas. They don't have what I'm looking for for dinner." And for anyone that's either visited or lived in New York City, the joke is hilarious because there are so many of these things everywhere, but the grocery stores are few and far between, right? Because there's so little space in the city. So it was a funny joke. Zero racism from what I saw. Maybe there were other videos that were alluding to something, but I don't think that at all. And I think this actually goes back to the previous theme um, in, in Clarence Thomas. They assume it's racist because they're thinking that it's only minorities that have bodegas, which is definitely not true. Anyone of any race can have a bodega and manage it. So, you know, give me a freaking break. And, and as people who lived in New York City knows, there's different uh, neighborhoods that have different ethnicities in them. So if you have a bodega in a certain neighborhood of a certain ethnicity, that bodega is likely owned by that ethnicity. And then you go to the other neighborhood and it's going to be a bodega owned by somebody else. So the fact that they immediately thought it was racist, again, is is proving that they are racist. And it's just so freaking frustrating. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad you shared that. Um, and yeah, if we're um, any any last words here before moving on to the um, to, to, to some of their topics here, TB, on, on the abortion topic. Yeah, I mean, again, this is why today's theme is the intolerant left, because these stories just to show that they have no acceptance for differing opinions. They, they, they can't even fathom that. And then there are studies that, that have come out for years, but also recently I've seen them where they show that statistically, you know, that the question is, you know, if you, if, can you be friends or in a relationship with someone with opposing views as yourself and the majority of you know people with conservative values said, yes, that they could be. But then there was the inverse with the left, where a majority of them said they could not be friends or in a relationship with people with opposing views. And it, it's just quite sad where there's just no tolerance. Like they just they look at you. If you if you somehow disagree with you, they assume that your values are only based in hate. That's the only thing they as you SB, you said it perfectly. They can't comprehend the concept of nuance. There is no nuance in their basis and their and their views. It's always just it's completely cut and dry. It has to be either their way or no way. And all these stories from abortion to, you know, HR policies and tech, it's all reflective of just like a very narrow minded understanding of society and, and how people think and, and speak with one another. Well, and people have to realize that these people, it's, it's the old adage of if you give an inch, they take a mile. And so that was on display in Roe v. Wade but it's also on display in, in a couple other uh, instances of giving. So um, Netflix, everybody knows Netflix. Uh, we've talked about it on the show a lot, how they're defunding the woke a little bit because they spent a lot of money on awokeness and it didn't really get them much. And so they're cutting out a lot of that. But so their CEO was recently named Reed Hastings, the Hollywood philanthropist of the year. And he's he's given $120 million to fund scholarships for historically black colleges. Okay, so that, that's a great gift, right? And that makes sense why he got that. But when reading the article, what's incredible is that he, he says that the reason he started giving was because he was giving scholarships 
to, and this is a new term that I think is was invented this year, a PWI school, a predominantly white institution. So I guess that's a thing now. So he's giving money to his PWI alma mater in Bowdoin College in Maine. And he's talking with these activists and they're saying that you're, you're essentially promoting the white supremacy. You're, the, the quote was, you're perpetuating the capital isolation in our country by funding scholarships to your alma mater. How about you fund scholarships to historically black colleges? And Reed Hastings, you know, I guess agreed with that. Maybe he was bullied about it. Who knows? He was originally going to give $60 million, and then he was essentially bullied into giving $120 million. So uh, it, there's a tweet here that his original donation was for $60 million, but then Hastings spoke with Black Lives Matter activists who told him, if you write a check and your hand doesn't sweat, it's not the right check. And so he increased it. So these people were not satisfied with $60 million. And it's not like these guy, this guy is worth several billion. I mean, he's worth, I think, over a billion. But $120 billion, if you're worth a billion, still a pretty significant amount of money. So, you know, they're, 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 they're going for everything they can go for. And then the, the related to this is there's an article. It's a couple weeks old now. But everybody knows Friends. And, and Friends is one of those shows that it's like The Office. It's one of the top shows that people rewatch. People love the show. I think it is more females in our generation TV that love this show, but like people, people our age love friends and they, and they rewatch it from start to finish and then start rewatching it again. And what, what we have here is I think again, kind of the same themes as Reed Hastings being bullied to stop donating to his alma mater in, in favor for the historically black colleges. Um, the creator of friends now has deep regret about how white friends was so apparently uh a show with six white friends which i mean that's going to happen in and if you're if you're white there's going to be friend groups where you have six white people but apparently that was too white and now she has to atone for her sins and she is donating money um for black scholarships at her own alma mater so you know, this is it's 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 liberals having this white guilt. I mean, why should there be any guilt about Friends? It's a very successful show. The main characters worked great together, obviously. And there's plenty of shows out there today and historically that have have been mostly or all black cast. So I don't think anyone it's kind of like making a problem out of nothing. And it's these liberals that they I guess they're bullied from the farther left of what their side is. They're feeling too much guilt. And whereas I think the the middle of the road or the conservative person would just say, look, friends, it's a show. We don't we didn't even see race in it. And these other shows that I like in this day and age, we're not looking for race in those shows either. So I think it just kind of it shows the perversion of how the the left has to see race in everything. And it, it's driving people crazy because it's either driving people on the left crazy or it's making middle of the road people go, I don't want to live in a world where everything is dictated by race and I can't have a thought outside of what my race is supposed to think. Yeah. It's a, it's a complete reimagining of, of history. Um, you know, I, I it's, it's very, um, it, it's just, it, it's Orwellian in that regard where they just, they want to rewrite history be, and they don't take, 
like history and society at the time into context. And like Friends is one example, but we see this all the time with them taking down statues or renaming, um, you know, schools or, you know, we saw recently with uh, George Washington University, they removed their colonial mascot. Um, they, you know, they, 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 they do instances like this because they apply, they hold those people to today's standards. And this is not a defense of or justification for, you know, very racist things like slavery or anything like that. But these are people who, if, you know, at the, they don't take into account that at the time society was a certain way and they, they were living within that where there was ho- horrible things that we we are totally against today. But back then it was more normalized and accepted. And they don't take that context into account. They say, no, these people should have been living by today's standards. And, you know, what's happening with Friends is, is an example of that. Where Friends is just like, when the writers created that show, I don't think they had any ill will in their hearts or anything malicious like that. It was probably just thinking of, you know, just a common friend group in the New York City area in, in the 1990s. And that was probably all it was. And this is what they, they want to rewrite the show. They want to rewrite history where they, they change the cast and to, to fit kind of their progressive woke ideals. And they, they, they just never, there's, there's no, like we say, we've been saying this before, there's no nuance, there's no context, there's no, you know, n- nothing like that at all that they, in, in their arguments. So it, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Like they just, the biggest problem I have with this SB is that they just assume the worst. They assume the worst mm-hmm. in everyone. That there's no respect or optimism for the for their common man. Uh, they just if you disagree with them, if you don't do things in alignment with them, the only explanation is that you are a bigoted and hateful person. It, it can't be anything else, and it's 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 really sad. Like if you choose to live your way that live your life this way. How happy can you really be when you just feel like you're constantly, you know, everyone around you hates you and is racist? If, if you really feel that way, then I, I personally feel bad for you. No, and I think I think that's exactly why some of these people are losing it because they have they have to live life that way, and we that's why we had the woke whiplash, which we always like talking about because it's the the media tells these people to think something one day. And then the next day, it's totally reversed because they have to go more woke. And so you end up in a situation exactly like Friends where 25 years after the show was created, apparently someone was so racist for having a group of friends that were white that they now need to atone for it. So, yeah, I think that's perfect. That's perfectly said. They it's just really hard to function in life going through life that way. So I think these people just um, I don't know what gets them out of it, but it's a. Uh, it's unfortunate, but speaking of kind of going through life in a, in a strange zone, we got to talk about some NBA here, and especially Kevin Durant, who I love hating on. Um, this guy is requesting a trade from the Brooklyn Nets. So the NBA, it's the most pampered league out of all. These guys make the best players make 50 million plus, which is more than any other people um, in any other sports. They don't, they play, they're supposed to play 82 games, but now superstars sit out games and are playing 60, 65 games a year. Kevin Durant signs with the Nets. I think he has four years left on his deal. And one of the years he was with the Nets, he was out the entire year recovering from an injury. And yet one, one, one or two weeks after he, after the NBA season ends and he was swept in the first round of the playoffs, 
now he's demanding a trade. So the the problem I have with these NBA players is that they they're, they're mentally weak. They're mentally soft in that he he was annoyed that he wasn't getting that much credit as a player. This is back when he was in Oklahoma City. So he goes to the Warriors to try to win a ring, thinking that if he wins a ring, then people would respect him more. But what ended up happening is he joined a 73-win team, won a ring. Now the Warriors have won rings after him, and he's not he's getting even less respect because he he is seen as a ring chaser. So I think you gotta stick true to your conviction, and he should have stayed on OKC, not not chased the rings. And now I think even if you're looking at the historical rankings, I mean, I look at guys like Carl Malone and Charles Barkley who didn't win a ring, but generally stayed with their teams. You know, I respect that more than Durant ring chasing and going to these these great teams. So it's um it's frustrating that that's happening and it's sort of ruining the league. We've talked about it a bit in the pod, but when players are signing five year deals, but after the first year, if things aren't going well, they can opt. They can basically tell the team, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be looking for a trade, or I'm not going to be showing up to work." You know, what kind of an environment is that? I mean, again, these guys are making fifty million plus a year. So, I just uh, we, we kind of have to touch on that because free agency is getting big. Um, there's memes out there with Win Winhorst uh, calling his shot on the Gobert trade. So there's um there's fun stuff going on, but. The, the NBA, I think, is losing some popularity from people looking at these these superstars and going, they just sort of seem kind of ungrateful at the whole spectacle of the NBA, which you're you're getting paid $50 million to play a sport you love. I, I know it's a job, but kind of hard to be ungrateful in that, I, I would think. Yeah, I mean, look, as, as a Knicks fan, I hate the Nets, so I take del- delight every time their team implodes, which seems to happen on an annual basis. But looking at it from an objective lens, I actually feel pretty bad for the Nets because they put all their chips on the table to bring in Kyrie and and KD, and they gave up lots of assets to do so, to be able to afford their contracts, to be able to bring them on. Lots of trades and dumping of you know valuable role players had to happen to accommodate them, and then you saw how the Kyrie saga panned out he, he like barely played uh and then kd just demanding a trade immediately so Kyrie was actually entertaining the idea of signing an extension with the with the nets or, or you know just staying on with them and with kd leaving now he's pulling the plug so you're absolutely right sp it's like a, it's like a mental weakness you know they're just like very mentally soft and they just they aren't cut from the same cloth as the older guys. You know, the older guys, they clearly showed loyalty. They wanted to build something with the team that drafted them. Um, they're, they're, there really wasn't any ring chasing going on. They wanted to, you know, they wanted to get rings at their, at the, at the team that they started at. And I think that's something like very noble and, you know, admirable about that. And that's just, that's just not in today's NBA culture. It's, it's, it's really sad. It's frustrating. And we've said this before in other episodes, but it really cheapens the sport. Uh, when you do so, like KD joining a, a a Golden State team that had won seventy three win uh, games, you know they went seventy three and nine. Like they didn't need a KD; they were already a championship worthy team, and he just joined them just to get an easy win. Like I'm sorry, like it, it's as good as at KD as is as an individual player. He's not like I, I you know he he's really not like that 
you know, that just like the team oriented guy, like he, he just, I still like, he can have all the talent in the world, but it's that like killer attitude that guys like Kobe and Jordan had that they just lack. And it, it, it really shines through. And like you see KD and Kyrie now, like posting, you know, things on Instagram and Twitter and just being very petty. Um, like, it, it just shows softness like like you know if you're mentally tough who cares what your haters say like you're let your your uh your talent speak for itself but these guys they just feel threatened by this so yeah i mean again as an as a nets hater i love to see it but uh, like katie's up there in terms of hate with lebron like that just they're just really individual amazing talents, but I just feel like they're really bad role models for kids. Like, you know, if you, if you have a, a kid in sports, like you want them to have more of that winning mentality than they do. It's, it's pretty sad, but I will say, speaking of free agency though, um, you know, there are, there are some pretty, you know, lots of big trades going down. So we saw Rudy Gobert going to Minnesota. So I, that's a great move for them. They have so much talent on that team. So um, that's going to be that's going to be interesting to see how that team steps up their game. I will say for you, uh, SB, your Celtics they got. I, in my opinion, I think they get better with Brogman. I think that was an excellent trade. It didn't seem like you gave up all that much to get him. A couple of, like deep bench guys. Um, so I looked. The Nets were they made it to the finals, and they uh, you know I I think Brogman's going to be a really good. Uh, piece of the puzzle that maybe gets you back there again. Yeah, I was happy about that one because look, when you make a championship, uh, when you make the finals, it's not like you can really improve your team that much. So the, you know, this is not like a massive trade, but in terms of they were already at the level where it's very hard to improve your team, doing something like this is, uh, is pretty big. So yeah, pretty excited for that. And you know, I, I do have to say, too, um, talking about Boston and New York sports, you know, I, I, I think I can give you a little room here to, to talk up the juggernaut, which is the New York Yankees. I mean, we haven't talked about it that much this summer, but they are just cruising here. Now, luckily as well, the Sox have picked it up. And we were talking early on in, in the, the season or maybe before the season that the AL East was going to be um, one of if not the best division in the league. And it really has been, I mean, we've got, we're, we're looking at 40 or looking at four 40 win teams here in the division. And in the AL, you got, you know, beyond that, the, the central and the West, only the top two teams or only the, the, the leading team in those divisions have 40 wins. So, you know, that what's tough for me with the Sox TV is that I just, the, the pitching has been a lot better than expected. So I think that's why they are winning, but you know, Evaldi can get injured, so I'm not sure about that. And when I look at guys like, uh, I think it's Waka and then Nick Pavetta, these guys have not done that well historically. So they're putting up really good stats right now, but um, I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that continues. I mean, if it does happen, great, but um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally convinced of that. So we'll see. But yeah, like my, Mike Waka putting up a 270 ERA, Pavetta, low threes. Um, we'll see. But you guys, the Yankees, you, uh, I mean, maybe you're, maybe you have a little bit of, of things to – a little bit of criticism, but, I mean, you're you're rolling here, and you, you definitely look like the favorite in the East. Yeah. I mean, well, f- firstly on your stocks, like, I mean, look, I got to give credit where credit's due. 
I would say like a quarter into the season, you guys were in the basement with the Orioles. I thought the deficit was far too too wide for you to make up for that. And then I, w- I stopped paying attention to the Sox, truthfully. And then every week, Bleacher Report and CBS Sports, they come out with MLB power rankings. And last week, they actually, one of them had the Sox at number four. And I was like, what the hell? Like, what? So I looked at their record. And I was like, oh, my God, they are, I think you guys are, what, 10 games above 500 now? But you've been on an absolute tear um, in June, absolutely dominating. I think you only had like four or five losses in the entire month. So there's been a bit of a hot streak you've been on. So, yeah, the AL East, you got the Yankees, Blue Jays, uh, and the Sox, you know, that, and, and, and then the Rays as well. You know, that's four teams that would be deep, that could make deep playoff runs, in my opinion. They got the talent, they got the depth, um, they got winning cultures. So I, I still believe, you know, it's showing out that they are the best division in baseball. Um, you know, I mean, for my Yankees, look, this has been a season for the ages. Um, they are on fire. Their pitching has been, the pitching was known to be good, but not this good. Um, they had guys like Nestor Cortez and Clay Holmes, uh, step up, you know, they had Severino join back in cause he's been injured for a while. And like, he's, he's still not the prime and prime form that he has been, but he's very, still very, very good. So they, the Yankees, they give up the least amount of runs, and they're they they're in the, they're up there for the most amount of runs scored as well. So that's a that's a winning combination uh, right there. Um, so you know they this is a team that right now I believe they are the World Series favorites. I think they've leapfrogged the Dodgers. Um, so they're the two favored with the Astros in third. But speaking of the Astros, I will say that the recent series with the Astros. It kind of validated a lot of my concerns I've had about the Yankees. So as good as they're doing, as much as I'm loving this run, they do have some some deep some flaws with them. I wouldn't say deep flaws, but these are correctable flaws that they can address in the in the, the deadline, the trade deadline. But I was telling SB this before, but the basically the first half of the Yankees lineup is really the only ones producing an offense. And and they are producing at a high clip. Like Judge is having an MVP caliber season. You guys got like Stanton, LeMayhew, Rizzo. Um, these guys are, you know, Trevino has been a revelation or catcher. So these guys are producing at a very high clip and we're winning off of their backs. But the bottom half, when you have like IKF, Joey Gallo, these guys are batting sub uh, 200. And in Joey Gallo's uh, uh, perspective, he's, he's, uh, he's batting like just above 100. So, these guys are not producing. So as we saw in the Astros series, they learned how to, to pitch around the Yankees and we were almost shut out for two straight games. Um, so that to me showed that there's, there's some, some flaws there that we need to shore up the back, the, the back end of our lineup. So I think you know, there's a lot of rumors about the Yankees looking to do that. I have full confidence in, in Brian Cashman getting the team what they need. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, there's still, you know, there's still a lot more work to be done. I'm not celebrating any championships just yet. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of this this league. It seems like there's a lot more parity. There's a lot of really top talent and teams, you know, really outperforming and ex- expectations. So, I've personally been loving this baseball season uh, for for obviously for for personal reasons, the Yankees, but also just the brand of baseball. I think has been very very good this year. So, 
don't know how you feel about that SB, but I, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the MLB so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, remember earlier in the year too, it was supposed to be no season um, when when we had the negotiations back and forth. So I'm ha- I'm happy we even had a season. But yeah, I think the the, the Sox. It's interesting because they they're it's they're in like a quasi rebuild on the fly where they still have guys like Devers and Bogarts doing really well, but they don't really have any stars in pitching. Um, and they haven't gone out and done something like sign Cole where, look, for a guy like Cole, yes, he's going to be expensive, but you know what you're getting with him. So I'd be looking for the Sox, maybe not this year or next year, but when the when they have a little bit more money freed up and they're going to be under the luxury tax, I think they they need that extra piece. So that's what, that's what I think they're missing. I think their pitching is not going to be good enough to win, whereas you guys have, have that rotation that you guys have. So... Yeah, we'll see. But look, uh, anytime the anytime you've got a team in the playoff hunt, that's kind of a fun second half of the summer. So I'm um, um, I'm pretty pumped for that to uh, to finish it up. But um, mo- moving on here with the brief uh, Biden omics update before uh, finishing up, we are getting new data in that is screaming recession. So as we've discussed in the pod, we we already had a negative quarter of GDP growth in the first quarter of the year. And the official definition for a recession is two quarters in a row. Um, There's a tracker that uh, the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank puts out uh, every week that says, what do do they think that uh, GDP growth is going to be for the next quarter? And they have, that has gone from 1.3% one month ago for 2Q to negative 2.1% as of the, the one this week. So just incredible slowing of the economy and a couple reasons for that. One is that consumer spending totally falling off a cliff. So that's in their data. And just as an example, another one was that there's a company called Micron that reported earnings on Friday. And they were the, – the street had estimated Wall Street thought they were going to report 25% more revenue next quarter than they actually reported or they're actually guiding for. And they said that at the beginning of the year, the expectation was that uh, PC laptop demand would be flat year over year. They now expect it to be down 10%. And they previously thought that smartphone demand would be up 5%. Now it's down 5%. So people are not spending on electronics. They're not spending on a lot of stuff. And I think we could we could really see a huge consumer spending issue because, well, you know, it was – all this money, all this free stimmy, it was given out to consumers. And what did consumers do with it? They immediately spent it. And so now they're, they're going into their savings. They're going into more debt at the same time that inflation's up, energy bills are up, food's up, and their, their 401k and their portfolios are down. Um, we might be looking at a significant recession. And really, it could be the Great Biden Depression. So that's the hashtag. We're using on Twitter to to kind of highlight all these data points, but it's it's looking very bleak out there, TB. And I'm uh, as we said on another pod, real estate. It's the only thing that hasn't cracked yet. It probably is going to crack soon. And when that happens, I just don't know what we're going to do to get the economy back on track. Yeah, it is pretty scary stuff. Um, you know, I uh, something that really jumped out to me too, SB. I never really followed zero hedge before not until 
you and I started the show because I know I know you're a big fan of them. So I I, I now I'm a follower, and the, the, I love their insight. And the other week, they actually were sharing some quotes from the Dallas Fed that was like very just very against the Biden administration, and that that's pretty you know they they tend to be very neutral and they don't take political stances and to see them just go out like they were making statements like they don't know what the biden administration is doing and that the decisions that they're making have you know are just making the things worse and they they said something too like to the effect of it'll be a miracle if you still have your job in the next two years like this is like pretty doomsday stuff coming from the dallas fed so it's it's pretty it's pretty scary out there um and then you touched on real estate I think we are starting to see the beginning of this, you know, at the very least, it's going to be a market correction, but I would say it's probably going to be another, you know, real estate bubble with mortgage rates, nearly 7% now real estate, you know, houses aren't selling as quickly as they once were. Um, you know, just a couple of months ago, they were flying off the shelves. People were outbidding each other. We, I've talked about this before on, on past episodes, but now we're starting to see a cooling of that. And I, I do expect real estate to come crashing as well. Um, and, you know, and, and what we hear from the White House is that it's Putin's fault. There's no accountability. And that's why I just don't have any confidence that we're going to get this fixed anytime soon. Like, we're only a year and a half into the Biden administration right now. We still have another two and a half years to go. And that's a really scary thought. Like, I I've really thought he's been here for at least two years. But we still got so much time more left to go. Like the midterms can't come soon enough because every decision this administration's making is just making things worse. Um, they continue to pour in billions of dollars into Ukraine. Uh, they don't. They continue to ignore our oil problems. There, I just don't see any like creative ideas. I don't see any solutions coming from this administration. And I think. This this recession, recessions are always painful, but I think this one in particular is going to hurt real bad. Yeah, and they can't do anything to to help it. You're, you're so right. They are not attempting to solve any of the problems. They're really not admitting that there even are problems out there. So I just I have no confidence. And if if you if you're a Federal Reserve watcher, I mean, essentially what they're doing is they're almost leading us into a depression from a recession because they're pulling all the liquidity because inflation's high and it's it's this bizarre situation where they are essentially they're, they're essentially saying that if the only way to solve the inflation problem which we caused because we printed all this money the only way to solve that is throwing us into a deep recession so yeah it's it's just um it, it's sad out there and i hope i hope people are doing okay financially because i i, I think increasingly it's going to be difficult. I, I saw something, maybe maybe Zero Hedge retweeted this, that more and more people are having trouble paying bills now, which surprise, surprise, when food inflation is 15% and gas is $5 a month, if you were low income and you were already um, pretty much on a shoestring budget and now all your bills are going out plus inflation, you're in you're in a rough spot. So yeah, TB, I, I would say that uh, to, to transition to our final topic here, the administration is managing the economy about as well as they have managed the COVID crisis. That's and great. we come to Anthony Fauci, who unbelievably, so this guy has had four shots. He got a second booster. He gets COVID. He has to miss his daughter's wedding. 
And he has now taken two rounds of this new drug, Paxlovid, and apparently he had what what this new phrase is, a COVID rebound, which is, I guess, if he took Paxlovid, he was feeling better because of it, and then he got a rebound of COVID. So the second time in two weeks that he got it, I mean, yeah, I'm just I'm just so sick of this guy. I'm glad that Fauci has been kind of, we haven't seen him a lot lately, but I don't know, man. I just, I really hope that, you know, he's not just laying in wait during the summer and they're just going to spring this guy out there in the fall to, you know, for a midterm variant or something. I, I just, I don't know. I, I just, I'm happy I'm not seeing him, but I really don't want to have to see him in a couple months. But man, the guy, the guy that just created so much chaos, um, it's kind of good good to see that he got a little karma coming his way oh it's beautiful cosmic karma sb that the guy that made people miss family members uh funerals their the births of children family gatherings graduations etc that he he now had to miss his his daughter's wedding so that is just beautiful karma he deserves every every little bit of it and look if I think this one example tells you all you need to know about Dr. Fauci. There was a Times article that was, you know, was a nice puff piece about him. And the picture shows him sitting at his desk with a mural of himself above him. <laughs> so you got to have some kind of ego to have one to have a mural of yourself and two to have it right above your desk so you can stare at it every day. So th- this guy, he's all about his own self-promotion. He, be- he just turned into a celebrity figure during covid and you know i i've really had enough of, of him he's look I, I i think we're starting to see the early signs of it sb with monkey pox that's like the big thing now they're kind of like spreading like doomsday scenarios about like they're gonna they're gonna try to make that the midterm variant like tinfoil hat firmly on when i say that but Look, I, I I know you can't you can't let anything pass these guys. You know that they, they've shown it before. They will do whatever it takes. And Fauci, he, he misses the spotlight. So uh, I think we're going to see a little bit more of him come fall. Yeah, no, I think he um he will definitely be back. He's he's resting up for his showcase in October <laughs> and early November, but. Yeah, TB, I, th- I think that does it for the show. Um, there actually, we were talking about this before we recorded, has not been a ton of woke recently. So I guess that's that's good for uh, the world and the country, but it's not as good for the show because it just hasn't been as much. <laughs> but, I mean, this is probably a summer lull. Um, the woke will come in fast and furious before we know it, but we felt like we uh, we wanted to get this one out for the listeners and – yeah, we'll um we'll we'll have another one for you soon, I think. But for everyone that's listening, hope you uh, enjoyed the the Fourth of July weekend, and um yeah, stay uh stay safe out there, and and don't uh, go too woke if you can't help it. Enjoy the weekend, folks.